This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good evening and thanks for being here tonight. I'm not going to waste any time uh, and just get right into the subject this evening. Uh, as you can see up on the board, we're going to be talking about the rapture of the church this evening, or that idea. And uh, the primary verse of scripture that this comes from is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18. It says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Today we continue our preparatory studies as we begin to study the book of Revelation. And the topic that we're going to cover, as I said, is the rapture of the church. And you're going to, you'll recall that there's three views on this thousand-year period of Revelation 20, and they are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And I want to remind you that the premillennialists believe that Christ is going to establish a literal 1,000-year rule on the earth that is preceded by the rapture of the church. And then the Great Tribulation follows. The origin of modern teachings on the rapture are primarily due to the contributions of one John Nelson Darby. He lived from 1800 to 1882, but prior to this time, most premillennial discussions on the rapture believed that it would occur in conjunction with Christ's second coming. And it would also be at the end of the tribulation period. Now, the reason why Darby held his particular beliefs was based on an understanding that the church and national Israel are distinct entities in Scripture. So only when the church is withdrawn from the earth can the prophetic events involving Israel be fulfilled. Now, post-millennialists believe that the thousand-year period is now. We're already in it. It's symbolic of the church age, during which time Satan has already been bound. He's restrained as the church spreads its spiritual influence, and this period ends with Christ coming back, and then the rapture is going to happen at that time. The amillennialist view doesn't believe in a thousand-year rule at all. They believe the kingdom of God is now present in the world. Christ rules his church through the Spirit and the Word. And Revelation 20 is just a description of the souls of dead believers reigning with Christ in heaven. That thousand-year period is viewed as fully symbolic, And as a result, they deny the rapture as well, usually, because the rapture has no real place in a theological view that reduces almost all of Revelation to allegory and past historical events. And they further point to the fact that the word rapture is never even found in the Bible. Today, I plan to show you the arguments for the pre-trib, mid-trib, and pre-wrath rapture. Because all the other views, they either don't recognize the idea at all, or they understand it to happen at the end of all things, And therefore, it has no real relevance to our study at this time. It's simply part of the natural events that would occur at the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. So what about this idea that the word rapture isn't in the Bible? 
So the phrase is actually caught up from 1 Thessalonians 4, and it's one word in the Greek, uh, harpazo, and it basically means to catch up, to pluck away, to take by force. And the English word rapture comes from the Latin word raptus, which means a carrying off, abduction, or snatching away. So one of the first arguments I ever heard that was against the idea of the rapture was that such a word is not in the Bible. And it's not. But the word rapture is used specifically in English to reflect this Greek word harpazo. And it's worth noting that there are many Greek and Hebrew words that uh, they're not used in English and there are different English words used in their place. But the meaning of the word is what matters. Therefore, my first point is that the concept of the rapture, it is in the Bible. Now, what exactly is the rapture? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, read verses 51 through 52. It says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Paul tells us we'll not all sleep. We won't all die. Uh, but when the resurrection of the dead believers occurs, the living believers will be changed. Incorruptible here means undecaying and immortal. These are the glorified bodies that we're told that we will someday be receiving in Scripture. Romans 8, verse 11, 19, 21, and 23 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies, by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. In both of these passages, Paul describes the rapture as the moment that we're changed from corruption to incorruption. In fact, Paul's clear enough about the idea of the rapture that some have decided to tune him out altogether on the subject. Uh, Paul's teachings on the rapture do have precedent in the Old Testament, though. Let's look at the rapture as it was talked about in Daniel. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What Daniel's describing here as a time of trouble is the tribulation period. Young, a theologian, I believe, rightly points out that this is referring to the time of the end that Daniel talks about in chapter 11, verse 40. And he points out that this is not talking about the days of Antiochus. Because the greatness of distress that's described by Daniel here, it's too strong of a description for what happened with Antiochus. If, then, Daniel is referring to the same end time that Revelation is referring to, and I believe that he is, the idea of living people and dead people being raised 
to immortality is the same idea that Paul is speaking about in both Romans and 2 Thessalonians, and it wasn't invented by him. But what are they rescued from? The word delivered can be translated as rescued. Rescued from what? Well, they are rescued at the time of the time of trouble. Take note that Daniel says this time of trouble, it's worse than anything that's ever happened on this earth. Now, do we honestly believe that the worst persecution and trouble that the world can and will ever see is in the past? I don't believe that. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that the worst is yet to come. Pre-trib advocates believe that this verse is telling us that we're going to be rescued at the beginning of that terrible time, prior to its awful days, so long as our names are written in the book of life. Post-trib advocates believe that we're going to be rescued after both the lost and the church go through this period of tribulation, of punishment and trouble and wrath together. Then we'll be raptured. Amillennialists believe the tribulation is just symbolic of the general persecution that the church has faced throughout history. They don't believe in that literal future seven-year tribulation period, and so there's nothing to be rescued from in their view. There's just going to be a resurrection. Speaking of resurrections, you may have heard before that uh, there's a lot of argument. When it comes to the rapture, one of the primary arguments against it is this idea of there being more than one resurrection. So the question arises, how many resurrections are there? This really is one of the more contested and debated ideas in Scripture because this idea of the rapture, it involves the resurrection of only dead believers prior to the eventual resurrection of everyone else. And it's with odds with people who, who claim, you know, there's only one general resurrection of the dead, saved and lost alike. It's going to happen at the same time. The amillennialist view is typically that there is one general resurrection it's at the end of the age. But the Bible speaks to this subject in such a way that it is possible to understand that there will not be just one resurrection necessarily, but maybe a series of resurrections, or maybe you prefer phases of a resurrection. And that some are resurrected to eternal life in heaven, and some are resurrected to eternal damnation. And this is at apparently different times. I'm going to share with you a series of verses used to support this point of view and consequently then to support the idea of the rapture. Now we already read Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. Here's John 5 verses 28 through 29 and here you can see it's talking about that uh, they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now when you read that by itself, it could be very easy to say, well, that's not talking about two separate resurrections. That's talking about two different results of the same resurrection. However, when we also take into account what we read in Daniel 12, verse 2, and the following verses, see what you think. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Then there's Hosea 13, 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Ezekiel 37, 12. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then there's Revelation 6 verses 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. And for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And then finally, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, nor his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, notice that in all these verses I just read, we're speaking about resurrection, but we're speaking about the resurrection. It only pinpoints dead believers, the children and the people of God. We see included in this group Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and eventually uh, saints who died uh, during the Great Tribulation period. What we don't see are the resurrected unbelievers specifically. Revelation 25 does mention them, however. It says that they will not be resurrected at the same time as believers. It says they will be resurrected after the millennial reign, the thousand years is complete. Now, if you recall, there are three views of the millennial kingdom that we went over. Premillennialists believe it's a thousand-year period on the earth. They believe the resurrection is going to happen of believers before that thousand years. And that allows them to reign together with Christ on this earth. And that view does match these scriptures fairly well. The postmillennial view believes a thousand years are figurative and that we're already in that thousand-year reign. So that means that believers and unbelievers alike must be resurrected at or very close to the same time. This doesn't match the verses that we read quite as well. Finally, you have amillennialists who believe the thousand-year reign is figurative and it, remain, it refers to an eternal reign that happens after the second coming. And there's only one general resurrection. Therefore, the idea of a rapture loses the clarity of meaning as it's taught by Paul. In order to support this view, the amillennialist has to take the position that virtually all of the preceding verses are allegorical. And this position is a slippery slope. It can easily lead to reading Genesis, uh, the virgin birth, and even the humanity of Jesus Christ is allegorical as well. 
I'm not making the claim necessarily that that view is wrong, just that it's a very dangerous view that has been uh, abused over the years because it's a very simple matter to state. Revelation and Daniel are apocryphal literature, therefore they only make use of pictures. There's nothing but pictures there. But it's not so easy to support this claim and prevent further abuse of the scriptures because it's very hard then to draw the line as to where we quit doing that. That's not to say it's not possible, but it's difficult. And very often, Scripture is literal, not allegorical. Now, the premillennial conclusion is that their view seems to match what we just read in Scripture most closely and accurately, and that is why the majority of Christianity today, minus the Catholic Church, believe in the premillennial view. It also seems to necessitate, if you take that view, a rapture, as described by Paul, because it seems that there are phases to the resurrection and they don't all appear to happen at the same time if you take a literal, grammatical, and historical approach to your study. Now, here is a common discussion that happens in the Church of Christ. Uh, and this is not my little type up here. This is an actual theologian who put this up. I'm just going to share with you a typical conversation he captures. Them who don't believe in the rapture or say they don't like it, and him. So they say, well, I don't believe in a rapture as you guys call it. He says to them, well, what do you think 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about when it says living Christians will become immortal and then be caught up? And then they say, well, I believe the changing will happen. I just think that all happens at the second coming. He says, well, all Christians I know use the term rapture to refer to the living saints changing into an immortal form and being caught up. So when I hear someone say that they don't believe in the rapture, I think they're saying 1 Thessalonians 4 is a lie. And they say, well, no, I don't, I don't believe that the rapture is going to occur prior to the second coming. He says, well, then, since you do believe in a changing and a catching away that happens at the second coming, then your theological position is called post-tribulationism. You believe in a post-tribulational rapture. And they say, well, maybe so. I just don't like that word rapture. To which he says, since you believe in the transformation and the catching up of living saints recorded in 1 Thessalonians 4, saying that you don't believe in the rapture is like saying you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And then explaining you actually don't believe that Christ is Jesus' last name. And you would be technically correct, but saying this is going to cause Bible-believing Christians not to mention the world, to misunderstand you. Now, I find this argument to be compelling at a certain level. If we deny the rapture simply because we don't like the name that we don't see in the scripture, even though the idea itself is clearly expressed, then that borders on pettiness and it does indeed sow confusion. However, if your issue is that you just don't believe in the rapture, period, because you don't believe it's expressed in any form in scripture, well, that's a slightly different matter. In such a case, I think you have the burden then to explain away the scriptures that express the idea that the word rapture encapsulates. I'm going to run through some of those verses with you quickly. Here's some biblical terms that represent the culmination of the idea that is called rapture. You have the appearing in Hebrews 9.28. You have the blessed hope of the appearing, Titus 2.13. You have the catching away, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. 
You have the changing, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. You have the entering of the bridal chamber, Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. You have the gathering, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. You have the manifesting of the sons of God and the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8, 18 through 25. You have the mercy, Jude 21. You have the receiving, John 14, verse 3. You have the rescue and deliverance, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. Now I want to say, notice here, with 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, we're told Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come. When we read Revelation and more specifically read about the Great Tribulation, we're told that this is the wrath of God. Some will say this refers merely to when God consigns the unbeliever to hell. But a careful reading of Scripture indicates that while this could be the case, there is more to the wrath of God than just consignment to hell. When we read about the bowls of wrath in Revelation, we'll see this clearly. This is why many say that Jesus not only delivered us from the wrath of being consigned to hell, but the wrath of the various judgments upon the earth is depicted in Revelation, specifically the bowls of wrath as the pre-wrath rapture position posits. Still, detractors point to Bible verses which state that uh, the Christian can expect suffering and that God's wrath is part of the suffering we can expect. I acknowledge that that could be a correct interpretation of Scripture, but I also acknowledge that it doesn't have to be the case. I instead prefer to believe that God no longer reserves wrath for his children because the propitiation for our sins was satisfied in Christ and therefore we need not experience his wrath. Furthermore, we know from scripture that God is not the creator of evil just as he's not the creator of confusion. Evil, suffering, sin, and the necessary judgment against it were never things that God wanted for his children. Instead, they are the wages of sin and death is the wages of sin. Christ received those wages for us. He paid our sin debt. He saved us from its consequences. And I believe it is perfectly scriptural to say that one of the consequences we've been saved from is experiencing the inevitable wrath of God. Therefore, the idea of the rapture is borne out in scripture as far as I can tell. Now, how you want to decide it plays out exactly, that's a question. But I don't believe, based on my study, the idea of the rapture, of the changing, I think that's a perfectly scriptural idea. Now, furthering this idea, we already read Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. But remember that it said, There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered every one that should be found written in the book of life. So, just understand, as I said from the beginning, I'm not drawing hard and fast conclusions up here, or at least I'm not necessarily sharing what I have, because I wish to respect what I believe are other possible views. But it's very hard to explain away all of these verses and just simply say there is absolutely no chance that it plays out in that way because there are verses that say that it does, potentially. The last uh, thing up here is the transformation 
Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. These are all the ideas, the terms, biblical terms, that when you add them all together, they are used to create this idea of the rapture. The theme that's present in all those verses I just read, I'm going to sum it up for you in one statement. Here it goes. <clears throat> we, as the saved body of Christ, all eagerly hold to a blessed hope and look forward to the day of his appearing at which time we will be caught up to be with him in the bridal chamber, married to him after we are caught or snatched away from this wicked earth and changed physically into what we are now spiritually, the sons of God. This gathering will happen in such a way and at such a time that it will be a great mercy. And we are rescued from the terrible things happening on earth and delivered from them exactly as it was foretold in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That statement is just me parsing all the verses together. Now think about that. All those verses parsed together result in that general idea. Now I ask you, does it seem strange or wrong to you that Christ, the bridegroom, would do such a thing? Does it seem strange that the bridegroom would want to save his bride from his own terrible wrath poured out against the injustice of the world? Especially when one considers that the reason he's pouring out his wrath against the world is because the world rejected him. Do we believe that we serve a God who is so filled with justice that he has no room for mercy toward those who love him and whom he loves? I don't believe that. And while I leave room for the idea that he could wish to further test his bride, see if we will remain faithful in all circumstances, I also leave room for what, would, what seems to me to be a more likely manifestation of his character and love. That being that he would save us from such wrath. And I will hold that view until it's obvious that it's not true. I find a very compelling argument in the idea that God will deliver us from his own wrath because of his son, Jesus Christ. I believe scripture bears out this hope. Now, there's different ways that he can do this, and they don't all involve disappearing from the earth prior to his second coming. But what I do believe is that we are not the subjects of his wrath. We may suffer, but we're not the subjects of his wrath. Now, here's some general arguments against the rapture, specifically the pre-tribulational rapture. And the very first question is what I just stated. Why would we be better than all the people, specifically in the church, who have suffered throughout history? Why do we get to be saved from suffering, people ask? And the answer is pretty simple. The persecutions of men and the wrath of God are not necessarily the same thing. God did not create evil men. I mean, he created men, but he didn't create the evil in their hearts. And the suffering that we sometimes face is a consequence of the fallen state of this world. But God's wrath and that persecution can sometimes and many times are be different things. Secondly, don't all the references to God saving us from the wrath simply mean that he's saving us from eternal hell? Well, there's at least two passages that are used to address this question. The first is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 and verses 9 through 10. And here, Paul is still on the topic of the day of the Lord. 
And he references the rapture that he spoke of back in chapter 4. And he states, God did not appoint us to the wrath. God has in store for the uh, unbelieving world who, why? They have spurned and they have mocked Christ. That's why the wrath is coming. Also, when the prophet Isaiah states that he knows that he himself will one day resurrect with other believers, and then they will all then go into the chedar, which is the bridal chambers. He says that we will then remain there until the indignation is over. That indignation, the term indignation is a term for the day of the Lord. You can find that in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19 through 20. And I want you to look at that because consider that term, hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. This term probably does not mean hide in death until the resurrection because thousands of years does not, does not really equal a little moment. Furthermore, Scripture nowhere refers to people who are asleep in Jesus when using that term indignation. While a day of wrath or indignation in Scripture doesn't always refer to the tribulation period, it does always refer to a time when God pours His wrath out on unbelievers, but not His children. You can find example after example of this throughout Scripture. A third question is, couldn't the church just be saved from the tribulation by being protected through it instead of raptured before it comes? Well, to that The answer is more than likely no, because the scripture teaches that there will be those who are saved during the tribulation, and they will then be killed in the greatest persecution of all time. So what this shows is that believers living during the tribulation are not specially protected. They had the opportunity to be saved, but they were like the foolish virgins who still want to attend the feast, but they were initially caught unprepared. That's the idea here. With this in mind, the verses of Scripture referring to members of the church who are spared from wrath must not be those who come to salvation during this very specific seven-year period, and that is also probably why they are specifically and separately addressed from everyone else. The fourth thing that people raise is the Jews and some Christians teach the abomination of desolation was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphany, and 165 BC. Well, Matthew 24 appears to contradict this because Jesus said that that abomination of desolation was still in the future. And when he said that, he said it in 32 AD, nearly 200 years after Antiochus Epiphanes. And they say, well, couldn't the abomination of desolation then have taken place in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed? Well, Jesus said that that will occur during the worst persecution ever ever on the earth, the Great Tribulation. I can think of the Holocaust, for example, which was a greater tragedy for the Jews in terms of death than was the destruction of the temple. Six million Jews were slaughtered there just because they were Jews. It seems unlikely that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was the worst persecution that the Jews will ever face through all time. Now, if you take the prophecies of the Great Tribulation at face value, then we have to accept that there is a final persecution for them that must be worse, even than that Holocaust, and certainly than the destruction of the temple. And if you're thinking, well, we're not talking about actual Jews, we're talking about the church, 
We'll get to that on Sunday. <clears throat> the last thing that I'm going to say that they bring up against this is, doesn't 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 show that the church's suffering will be relieved or raptured when Jesus comes with his angels at his second coming? The answer is no. The passage, this passage, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, is saying that the church's suffering will be relieved then the period of God's fiery wrath will be poured out by the angels in the trumpet and or bowl judgments. This relief comes either before the seven-year period or before the bowls of wrath, according to what we read. So these are just a handful of arguments against the rapture and a handful of rebuttals to those arguments for people who believe in a rapture that happens before, sometime before, the second coming of Christ. So as we conclude this study on the rapture, I just want to summarize by reminding you that it's very difficult to come away from a study like this feeling that you can settle on a position that is absolutely unassailable. As I said before, I believe very strong cases can be made for each of the three views and uh, that determine your idea of the rapture, premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. But understand that depending upon the view that you take, you're not only going to come away with a very different view of when the rapture may occur, but whether or not it's going to occur at all. And I humbly acknowledge that fact, and I hope that what's actually been accomplished today is to prove that regardless of when or how it happens, there will be a changing of the believer. And we will be caught away to be with the Lord. That idea of the rapture is very much in Scripture. And the way I see it, if it turns out that another view than my own is correct, then my ultimate positional security in Christ is unchanged because this is not a matter of eternal security. There are those who will argue that differing views on the rapture should be considered heretical, but I'm not of that mindset. Remember, our salvation is not worked out by how perfect our understanding of the inner workings of Christ's salvific work is. Our salvation is worked out by the completed work of Christ and our acceptance of the gospel message and its call to obedience. Perfect understanding of prophetic material is not given to us, and thankfully our salvation does not hinge on it. In fact, I'd say it's very much like the perspective one takes on a glass that's filled only halfway with water. Is it half full or is it half empty? Neither answer is really right or wrong, but each view will have a certain impact. And this is where the only reason why this subject has any importance, in my view, because it will impact your emotions, your hope, and your sense of urgency. Because if it is true that there would be a rapture that would spare us from wrath to come, and if you weren't part of that, that you were left to deal with God's wrath, even if you could still come to him, as we read, that would be a terrible thing. But I believe there is some reason to consider this because of the parable of the ten foolish virgins and others. So whatever your view on the rapture, I want to remind you one thing is certain. However he comes, he is coming, and we will be changed. And when he does, we will all give an account of every word, every thought, every deed, and you want to be ready. The Bible tells us that to be ready, we have to acknowledge we are sinful, fallen creatures who need a Savior, and we must repent of that. We must want and decide 
to take steps to make a change in our lives. We must confess that Jesus is the only Savior. And we must confess his name before the whole world. And in response to that confession, we must obey. We must come to him. We must submit to the watery grave of baptism. And only then will we, will we be freed to good works. To have that fruit in our lives. To obey out of love for him. And thereby not grieve the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We don't do these good works to obtain salvation. We do it because we love him. For he says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So, when we talk to people about the rapture or whatever it may be, how much love is in your heart for them? What message is most important to you? Is it worth driving a person away from the truth so that you can be right about a matter that is not central to our salvation? Because what I just stated, that's what matters. And ultimately, I don't care what view you take. We can have a discussion about it, but if we have to agree to disagree, I'm going to walk away from that saying, I love you, I respect you. One of us is going to be proven right, certainly, but I, I, I would hope that neither one of us will be gloating over it at that time, because it doesn't matter. Not in that way. Now, if you haven't been baptized, today's the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. And we have reason to feel a sense of urgency. And if you have done these things and you, know, you find yourself returning to your old sinful ways or if you're struggling and need help, that's what we're here for. If you need prayers, if you need encouragement or support, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.